listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 12 in the series. Today's episode is titled, Paris, Prince of Troy. So welcome back. This is episode number 12 of Trojan War, the podcast. The title of today's episode is Paris, Prince of Troy. Now, if you will remember where we left things at the end of episode number 11, Achilles has just been seriously dishonored. Agamemnon has stolen his slave girl, Briseis, and Achilles, in a rage, has stormed down the beach to his tent and called out across the wine-dark sea to his mother, the immortal sea goddess Thetis. Well, Achilles had poured out his troubles and his griefs to Thetis, and Thetis had listened as Achilles had recounted the whole horrible story about how Agamemnon had so seriously dishonored him. And, and then Thetis saying, what can I do to help, son? How can I help you? Achilles had made a request of his mother Thetis. He, he had asked his mother Thetis to pay a personal visit to Zeus, king of the gods, and then to make a, well, a rather audacious request of Zeus, king of the gods. What Achilles wanted Zeus, king of the gods, to do was to, well, prompt Hector to leave the walls of Troy with his entire 75,000 soldiers and then to imbue Hector and the Trojan army with incredible strength so that they could march across the Greek plain and, and, and destroy every Greek soldier that they met. Achilles wanted Greeks to die in the tens of thousands. He wanted the entire Greek army to be pinned up against the beaches of the Mediterranean so they had no way to escape. And Achilles said, maybe at that point, once Agamemnon recognizes how critically valuable I am to the army, Agamemnon will actually show me the honor that I am due, come to my tent, return my property, my slave girl, Briseis, bring compensation treasure for the dishonor he has caused me, and then maybe Maybe at that stage, you might consider fighting to help save the Greeks from certain destruction. But up until that point, they can all die as far as I'm concerned. Mother, that is what I want you to request of Father Zeus, King of the Gods. Grant this glory and honor to your son. Well, Thetis had agreed to Achilles' request and flown up to the throne of Father Zeus up high on Mount Olympus and, and made the request on behalf of her mortal son, Achilles. Well, Zeus had listened to the request with, well, with some degree of concern and alarm and not responded right away. He thought about it for a moment. Then he had turned to Thetis and said, you know, if I grant your request, it will lead to some very bad business up here on Mount Olympus. And Zeus had told Thetis that, well, his wife, Hera, queen of the gods, was was a huge fan of the Greeks, uh, no fan of the Trojans since the day all those years ago when the Trojan prince Paris had snubbed her by giving the apple for the most beautiful to the goddess Aphrodite. And, and as a consequence, well, if Zeus said, if I grant any sort of ascendancy to Hector and the Trojans in the war, I'll be hearing about it from my wife. And when Hera gets going, it's not a pretty thing up here, Thetis. 
Well, Thetis had continued to beg and plead, and eventually she had worn Zeus down, and Zeus had, had said, I'm nodding my head in assent. I will make this request of yours happen. Now, Thetis, it might be in your best interest to get off of Olympus right now before Hera spies us out and begins to ask questions about what the two of us are conspiring to do up here. So Thetis had flown away back down to the Mediterranean, but not in time. Hera, always keeping a, a, a mistrusting and, well, reasonably mistrusting most of the time, I on her husband Zeus had immediately rounded on Zeus and said, I saw you talk. What are the two of you talking about? You're not planning on helping the Trojans, are you? And Zeus had turned around very disingenuously and turned to Hera and said, of course I'm not, Hera. I, Thetis and I were just uh, catching up. Old reminiscences, old conversations, old times. Absolutely no plotting at all, dear. Nothing to worry about. But, uh, but then a moment later, Zeus had turned around and said, and even if I am plotting with Thetis, it's none of your business, woman. So shut up and get out of the way or I will box you by the ears and teach you a lesson about asking your husband questions. And uh, Zeus, once again, was setting the gold standard for the Bronze Age patriarchal world's treatment of women. Well... Hera had got out of the way in a hurry, and and Zeus had gone about doing the deed which Thetis had requested. Now, now we have no idea precisely how Zeus went about the mechanics of orchestrating the ideas inside of Hector's head, but later that afternoon, Hector sat down with his ministers, his trusted advisors, and and they had a serious conference. Hector realized it was time to do some long-term planning on the future of Troy. That conversation, well, it revealed what Hector had already feared, and that's that Troy was in significant dire straits. The situation was was terrible inside of Troy, and essentially it came down to a few problems. First of all, the Trojans had been bottled up inside of their city now for a decade. Uh, they had not in any numbers been able to get in or out of the city. Uh, that was a problem. Number two, uh, Troy had sent out embassies way back at the start of the war to other nations requesting aid and relief from the Greek attack. And uh, what would have been most useful, of course, is if some great ally of the Trojans had have opened up some second front someplace and pulled some of the Greeks off of the beach. But but with the 25,000 Greek soldiers scourging the Mediterranean under the guidance of Achilles most of the time, well, all of the Trojan political and military allies had had dried up and, and Troy was left on its own. And then there was a final problem, the immediate problem, and, and likely the problem that Hector feared the most. And that's that was, well, the people of Troy were were on the verge of starvation. The quartermaster 10 years ago had assured Hector that there was enough food on the city, there was enough food inside of Troy that if they went on to half rations, they could easily survive 10 years. But well, that 10 years was up and, and Hector knew that Troy was in trouble. He had prudently set aside a large amount of storage of food for the 75,000 men in the Trojan army. Hector knew that if those men were going to have to come out and fight someday, he didn't want them heading out onto a fight against the superior Greek forces on empty bellies. So there was a sizable food reserve set aside just for the army, but Hector was enough of a student of history that he recognized that what happened in siege warfare and the way that siege warfare usually ended was, well, with food riots and the population turning on the stores of food and grabbing what they could to feed their hungry children. And that was one possibility. And of course, the other possibility was that some Trojan citizen desperate to, to, to save themselves and to save their children and starving family members would have somehow managed to effect some sort of a deal with the Greeks and then gone ahead and opened the gates of Troy from the inside and allowed the Greek army in. 
Now, if you're wondering how this might have happened, I told you that Troy had three gates and certainly no soldiers or armies could get in or out of the city in any large mass, but there were drainage sewers and pipes in and out of the city. And and after 10 years of siege warfare, enterprising Trojans had found their ways, a few of them, of of sneaking outside of the city. And, and, and so there was commerce and there was some degree of communication between the Greeks and the Trojans. And the other thing, of course, is over the 10 years, on occasion, Hector had actually, when on times when Achilles was off on raiding missions only, but there had been times when Hector had opened one of the gates of Troy and allowed a contingent of his soldiers to to engage in, in quick sort of flying raids against advanced parts of the Greek army who had got too close to the walls in small enough numbers. And and this, of course, was great for Trojan morale. Hector often led these missions. And, and so there was always a possibility Hector knew that on one of those missions, a Trojan soldier might have melted away from the rest of the army and, and joined up with the Greeks. And, and so Hector knew he had to bring the siege of Troy to a conclusion very soon or internal conditions in the city of Troy would bring it to a conclusion for him. So Hector called back in his quartermaster, uh, asked a few questions, not about the food inside of Troy, but rather the accumulated wealth inside of the city. What kind of jewelry was available? What kind of gold or bronze plate was available? What sort of treasure could be melted down if necessary, if reparation payments of some sort were going to be required to get the Greeks off the beach? And once Hector had the information that he needed, Hector came up with a plan. He thought through the plan very carefully for 24 hours and convinced that it was Troy's best last hope of surviving without starvation or the city being burned to the ground. Hector had raised a white parley banner from the walls of Troy and once the white parley banner had been raised, he looked across the plain and within a few moments, a white parley banner rose from the tent of Agamemnon, King of Kings. And the two leaders, Hector, Prince of Troy and Agamemnon, King of Kings, surrounded by a small contingent of diplomat priests and a, and a small contingent of bronze armed soldiers, the two kings, the two leaders, met each other for the first time on the plains of Troy and talked. Hector didn't waste any time on niceties or formalities when he spoke with Agamemnon. He turned around to Agamemnon and he asked Agamemnon a very simple question. He said, Agamemnon, how would you like to end this war tomorrow morning with only one dead man on the beach? Our armies won't have to fight one dead man will decide the entire contest. And Agamemnon had turned around and raising an eyebrow had said, I'm listening, go on, speak Hector, tell me what it is that you're proposing. And Hector had laid out a proposal. And what Hector proposed to Agamemnon was essentially combat by single champion to the death, winner take all. Well, Agamemnon had turned around and, and said, and well, clarify, what do you mean combat by single champion to the death? And what exactly does winner take all mean, Hector? And Hector had laid out a proposal to Agamemnon and, and Hector's proposal had essentially come down to this. Hector had said, listen, what we will do is each of us will designate a champion. You will designate a champion of the Greeks. I will designate a champion of the Trojans. Uh, then tomorrow morning, the two champions will meet each other at the plains at the midpoint between your camp and the walls of Troy. And, and the two champions governed by rules established by our priests and and the whole contest fairly regulated by our priests well the two champions will meet each other and they will fight it out to the death now here's what i propose agamemnon and hector had gone on to outline a proposal hector had said in the event that the trojan champion wins the contest agamemnon then you greeks will concede defeat and sail away from the beaches of troy with nothing but on the other hand, Agamemnon, if the Greek champion wins the contest, 
then here is what we will give you. First of all, we will turn over to you, Helen. That will be great for your propaganda machine back at home, Agamemnon. You will have Helen, the, the, the raison d'etre for this war in the first place. Number two, if the Greek champion wins, we will turn over to you compensation. We will turn over to you a supply of Trojan treasure of such fitting size that the stories of the wealth that we hand to you will settle down through the ages, Agamemnon. Agamemnon, we will give you so much treasure that, well, put bluntly, Agamemnon, I've done the math. We will give you enough treasure that you will be able to pay off your Greek soldiers and, and, and send your foot soldiers home without risk of them tearing across your own countryside to, to take the back pay that you owe them. Well, Agamemnon listened to what Hector had offered, and what Hector had offered was, well, really a gold-plated exit strategy. Uh, he, he was giving Agamemnon what Agamemnon would need to win the propaganda war back home, uh, the, the return of Helen, which was, of course, a sensible reason for why the Greeks had even come to Troy in the first place. And, and very uh, judiciously and prudently, Hector had recognized that there was no way Agamemnon could possibly go home, even with Helen, if he didn't have money to pay the back wages of the Greek soldiers who had been sitting on that beach for 10 years. So Agamemnon listened very, very carefully and realized that short of total victory, Hector was offering, well, something that Agamemnon had to seriously, seriously consider. And and there were reasons why Agamemnon had to consider it. His own situation was really not much better than that of Hector inside of the walls of Troy. Uh, Agamemnon was facing his own problems, three particular problems. Uh, the first and the most immediate concern, of course, was, well, well this plague that this plague that had recently run through the Greek camp had, it had killed men, but more importantly than the men it had killed, it, it had rendered the other soldiers inside of the army desperately, desperately, desperately sick. And, and Agamemnon was just hoping that Hector was unaware of, of how badly impacted the fighting ability of the Greek soldiers really was at the moment. Agamemnon knew he had superior numbers, approximately 100,000 to 75,000, but, but the plague had rendered any military superiority completely in doubt. Hector might have only been able to put 75,000 soldiers in the battle, but Hector's soldiers were healthy and well-fed, and Agamemnon's soldiers recovering from plague. Well, Agamemnon didn't know what those men would, would would fight like if they had to turn up and fight sometime in the next week before they'd recovered anyway. So that was the first problem. Uh, an immediate fight between the Greeks and the Trojans could have been disastrous for the Greeks, but there was a much more larger and looming problem that Agamemnon faced, and that was the Achilles problem. Achilles was refusing to fight, and word of that, of course, had made it out across the the entire Greek army, and and that was a twofold issue, really. First of all, of course, well, well, the loss of Achilles was a loss of Greece's foremost fighting man. I mean, Achilles was the greatest, most dangerous weapon of mass destruction to ever appear on a world battlefield. So, to not have him in your arsenal was a significant blow to the Greeks. But even more importantly than the lack of Achilles and the loss of Achilles as a fighter was the psychological damage that. Achilles stepping down from this battlefield had affected inside of the morale of the Greek troops. Achilles had announced that he wouldn't fight, that he no longer believed that this was really his war. And, well, other foot soldiers were beginning to whisper that they were wondering if this was their war either. And, and, and there was, there was talk, there was whispering among the foot soldiers of other foot soldiers considering maybe following the, uh, the Achilles model. And, and Agamemnon recognized that morale in the army was at an all time low. In fact, just the other day, Agamemnon, the, the politician, had very carefully and consciously floated a couple of trial balloons. He had, he had approached different small segments of the army and made a speech where he announced that it was in t his intention to, to go home, to give 
up on the mission. And, and, and all he was really doing, of course, was gauging how the soldiers would respond. And, and what Agamemnon had hoped the soldiers would respond with was, no, we're not giving up on the mission. This is glorious. We want to stay. But instead, when Agamemnon had, had even mused about the idea of let's go home, he had been horrified to find out the, that his soldiers that he had tested on this were cheering their agreement and rushing for the boats. And Agamemnon had had to call in his best speechmakers and orators to, to reconvince the soldiers that staying was actually the glorious and wonderful thing to do. So Agamemnon knew that his coalition army, his 100,000 men-at-arms under all of these warlords were, well, he was calling himself king of kings, but the other warlords were autonomous. They could do what they wished if they chose. Well, that coalition army was collapsing and slowly beginning to fray at the seams. And Agamemnon knew that he needed to bring this entire military venture against Troy to a quick conclusion someday soon, or Operation Trojan Storm would just melt away in the night and the whole thing would be done for. So Hector's proposal was attractive to Agamemnon. And, and, and what's interesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that, that 10 years earlier, if if this proposal of trial by single champion, winner take all, had have been made in the first year of the siege against Troy, of course, well, neither side would have been interested. Uh, if the Trojans had have proposed it, well, the Greeks would have turned around and, and, and said absolutely not, because 10 years ago, the Greeks were firmly convinced that Troy would fall, that the siege would be fairly quick, and then Troy would fall, and the Greeks would get everything. They would win Troy, they would get all the treasure they could get to burn the city to the ground. So they wouldn't have been interested. And, and alternately, of course, well... It, if the Greeks had a proposed a trial by single champion to end it, the Trojans would have laughed in their face 10 years ago and said, what, with our walls, our walls that have never been destroyed by an enemy force? Stay on the beach as long as you want, Greeks, but but you're not going to win. We have more food than you can possibly, possibly, possibly hope to, to wait us out with. And so, so 10 years ago, both sides had drawn very large and powerful rhetorical lines in the sand on what they would or would not do and on the compromises they would or would not make. But as in every war, that drags on and on and on. Well, the lines initially drawn in the sand by the politicians become quite blurred lines indeed as, as a conflict ceases to have an exit strategy and as it begins to get into an inevitable end game situation. So Agamemnon was very, very, very interested in Hector's proposal, but, but there wasn't one critical, critical problem with it. And Agamemnon knew that he could not accept combat by single champion unless he had a gold-plated guarantee that it would be the Greek champion who would win. Agamemnon figured he could he, he could actually go back to Greece and, and survive politically if he brought back Helen and if he paid off his army. And, and if he played it right, he might even be able to spin it into some sort of leadership victory for him. But Agamemnon knew that if the Trojan champion won that trial by single champion and the Greeks were forced to go back to Greece with nothing at all. Well, well, Agamemnon would be dead within a week and, and the entire Greek peninsula would descend into civil war and chaos. So Agamemnon turned around and asked the important question. He said to Hector, he said, who will the two champions be? Because everything depends on the champions. Well, Hector had thought this through very carefully. Hector smiled and he turned around and he said, I think Agamemnon, you will be pleased with my selection of champions. Agamemnon, the champion for the, for the city of Troy will be Paris, my little brother. He will fight for Troy. And the Greek champion Agamemnon will be your little brother, Menelaus. Menelaus will fight for Greece. You have to admit, Agamemnon, it has a certain delightful symmetry to it. 
Well, Agamemnon was stunned into to shock and silence. He, he he stood there for a moment listening, turned baffled to Hector, and he said, but I don't understand, Hector. Why are you doing this? Uh, everybody knows that your brother Paris is a hopeless fighter, that he's a lover, not a fighter. My uh, my brother Menelaus will take him apart in moments. It's not even a fair contest. And then suddenly, Agamemnon had realized that this had been Hector's intention all along. Agamemnon looked at Hector and he said, you're, you're, you're deliberately sacrificing your brother, aren't you? You know that Paris will lose. And Hector said, yes, and I know that only if I can guarantee you the loss of the Trojan champion will you Greeks accept the terms of the contest. So yes, I know Paris will lose. My brother, Paris, has not lifted up a weapon or practiced any sort of military skill any time in the last 10 years since he's been back inside of the city of Troy. I know your brother Menelaus is not the greatest fighter in the world, Agamemnon, but your brother Menelaus will take Paris apart in a matter of seconds. This is a non-contest. Uh, well, Agamemnon had shaken his head in bewilderment at the at the audacity of Hector to propose such terms, and and then Agamemnon had turned around and said, "Well, Hector, you're giving me something that that I I can't refuse. Uh, short of the total destruction of your city, this is the best possible exit strategy that any general could hope for." And and Agamemnon and Hector shook on the terms of the deal and agreed that the priests would arrange the contest and that the contest would happen tomorrow morning at a midpoint between the plains of Troy, between the Greek tents and and the walls of the city itself. But Agamemnon couldn't resist asking Hector a follow-up question. He, he he turned to Hector, Prince of Troy, a man that he had never spoken with in a culture which he never really quite understood. And he said to Hector, he said, I, I, I don't understand. Can you, can you explain to me that you are willing to sacrifice your brother, your own blood for for the sake of your city? I, I, I do not believe that a Greek warlord would be willing to make such a sacrifice of family. Explain, Trojan. And Hector had gone on to explain to Agamemnon uh, why he had done it. And Hector had told Agamemnon a story. And the story that Hector had told Agamemnon had been that, well, Hector had known right from the beginning when he had met Paris that deep down Paris was shallow. And Hector confessed, though, that he, like everybody else inside of the city of Troy, had been well, briefly and temporarily charmed and overwhelmed by Paris's devastating good looks, his winning smile, his wit, his gift of the gab, and, and, and his, his completely relentless optimism in the face of all evidence ever to the contrary. And, and, and Hector said, you know, Paris is just such a charming, likable guy that I suppose like everybody else inside of the city, initially I got sucked in. And, and, and when Paris came back with Helen, of course, well, she was so devastatingly beautiful and the two of them made such a wonderful couple that, well, it looked like a fairy tale wedding, but Hector went on to, he had now had 10 years to actually watch his little brother Paris and appraise his little brother Paris and had noticed that his little brother Paris not once in the last 10 years had done anything to to take any sort of responsibility for this war that he had been instrumental in causing between the Greeks and the Trojans and that Paris not once in the last 10 years had taken any interest inside of the population of the people of Troy himself. Uh, Hector went on to explain that Paris continued to spend most of his waking hours either in Helen's bedroom or in the royal harem and and that not once had Paris done anything to help the people of Troy. And as a consequence, Hector said, I've come to the conclusion that, well, my little brother isn't really worth saving. The citizens of this city absolutely loathe and despise him. They'd tear him apart in the streets if they had the opportunity. And, And the saddest thing about it, Hector went on to explain, is that that Paris was completely oblivious of simply how incredibly clueless, self interested, and vacuous he was. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the best way of explaining this is to sum it up. Paris, uh, a man in his late 20s, was a shallow, vacuous, and remarkably self-satisfied pretty boy moving cluelessly across the stage of world history. And so that's why Hector, the big brother, was willing to arrange this trial by single champion to the death. We Trojans, well, we should have stoned Paris to death 10 years ago when we had the chance. For all the good he's done us, Hector went on to remark. And with that, Hector and Agamemnon departed each other, uh, agreed that they would send their priest diplomats out to arrange the terms of the trial and fight to the death by single champion, and that tomorrow morning the war between Greece and Troy would be over with only one dead soldier on the battlefield. All in all, it had been a very good day's diplomacy for both of the leaders inside of this war. Well, the next day came, and the two armies assembled to witness this trial by single champion to the death. For the first time in 10 years, Hector opened all three gates of Troy, and all 75,000 Trojan soldiers, complete in battle dress, marched out onto the plains. They walked to about the midpoint of the plains, and then they sat down, cross-legged, removed their helmets, and set their shields to the side. There was going to be no fighting today. The Trojans had come out to witness this contest, and, well, the Trojans fully expected that what they would be witnessing was the death of the despised prince of their city and the end of the war. A moment later, Agamemnon led the Greek forces out across from his tents to a midpoint in the plain, and a 100,000 Greek men-at-arms walked across till they were just mere meters away from the Trojan army, and then those Greek soldiers sat down cross-legged, took off their helmets, and set their shields to one side. The Greek soldiers weren't here to fight either. The Greek soldiers were here to witness Menelaus, their champion, destroy Paris, Prince of Troy, and the Greek soldiers were delighted to not be fighting. After 10 years, the common men, the foot soldiers in this war, were thanking their gods and thanking their lucky stars that they had somehow managed to survive unscathed. They, they had all fully expected that their chances of surviving this war alive and with all their limbs intact were actually very, very low. And now here was an opportunity for them to go home. The Greek soldiers, of course, were excited because they knew about Paris and they knew that the Greek soldiers would be going home with treasure, gold, bronze, copper, tin, horses, glorious, glorious presents from the treasury of, of Troy, which would, of course, be bankrupt after the reparation payments were made. So, the Greek soldiers were thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to just sit and watch this happen. And the Trojans, well, they were rather ecumenical about whether, well, Paris or Menelaus won the contest. Certainly the Trojan soldiers would have liked to have keep their treasure, but they knew that treasure and giving up the treasure and bankrupting the city was a more than satisfying and acceptable price for the safety and the lives of their wives, their children, and their children and their grandparents who were living inside the walls of that city. Well, the priests came out, they announced the rules of the contest, and I'll tell you about the rules of these contests, ladies and gentlemen. They were, they were very stylized affairs and, and all regulated by a very strict series of rules of combat. So what would happen inside of these contests is after the priests had made all the appropriate sacrifices to the Olympian gods, and after the priests had cast down a curse on any of those men sitting cross-legged witnessing this contest, uh, this was a holy truce, and any man violating the truce would be cursed for all eternity by the 
the Olympian gods. Well, after all that business was done, then what would happen is the priests would draw lots and, and one of the two combatants on the, on, on the field of battle, either Paris or Menelaus, would be awarded first shot. And here's what would happen with first shot. E- each of the two combatants was given two weapons. Uh, they were given a long throwing spear with a lethally sharp bronze tip, and then they were given a, a huge battle sword, again made out of bronze. Uh, both of the two combatants were carefully armed inside a bronze armor, and, 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 and the bronze armor fully, fully, fully covered their body. Now, just a little bit of a side note here. Paris, Prince of Troy, had never actually worn a set of bronze armor in his life. Paris, Prince of Troy, occasionally, I told you earlier that occasionally the Trojans would open up their gates and allow a small little group of Trojan soldiers to come out and, and, and fight and attack a group of Greek soldiers who had got too far away from the main body. And usually Hector led these attacks. But there were times, of course, just for the public relations end of it, that Paris would come out and lead one of these attacks. And it was a, it was a comical, farcical sight to see for both sides because Paris, the pretty boy dandy, instead of coming out dressed in bronze, would, would come out dressed with a with a leopard skin, a fearsome looking leopard skin robe slung over his glorious and good looking upper body. And, and, and while the robe looked effective, of course, it was completely ineffectual as armor. And then Paris would always come outside of the walls with this leopard skin over his shoulders and brandishing two fearsome looking bronze tipped spears, which of course Paris had never taken the time in his entire life to learn how to properly throw. And, and, and then Paris would stand there and strut up and down and, and, until a Greek soldier would come close and then Paris would, would go hightailing it back inside the walls of the city. Uh, the truth was that if Paris actually ever did any fighting, the weapon of choice that Paris used was a coward's weapon, a, a, a bow and arrow, a weapon universally despised by the foot soldiers on both sides in this war and by the warlord kings because well, with a bow and arrow, you could you kill your enemy from a distance. You didn't actually have to get in close, and 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 if you if you missed your enemy when you shot with a bow and arrow, and Paris most of the time did miss his enemy. Uh, uh, most of Paris's bow shots would fall a few meters short and land somewhere near the feet of of the guy he was aiming at, not up in the breast or or in the vital organs. Well, at, at that stage, if you're shooting a bow and arrow, you could you could run away and hide from the enemy. So the bow was considered a coward's weapon, and and inside of these these. These particular contests, of course, these combats by single champion to the death, there was absolutely no place for a bow or anything like that inside of one of these contests. So, so in the day of this particular contest, Paris arrived for the contest, not in a leopard skin, his usual dandy little pretty boy prince outfit, but instead rather sensibly dressed in bronze armor, which he had never donned in his entire life. And, and Paris was now being forced to actually brandish one of these throwing spears, which he had never actually practiced throwing. This was going to be the weapon, which was, well, Paris was going to live or die on once this contest started. So each of the soldiers was given bronze armor. They were given a throwing spear. They were given a sword and they were given a huge shield. And and the way that the contest works was very simple. Whoever got first throw, and a priest said by drawing lots, awarded first throw to Paris. Well, whoever got first throw would get one free throw of the javelin at their enemy. So so what Paris was going to do was have an opportunity to pick up this fearsome bronze-tipped javelin and hurl it with all of his might directly at Menelaus. And Menelaus would be expected to stand there, brace his feet, and use only the strength of his shield arm to deflect the blow of that javelin. And and if Menelaus managed to successfully deflect the blow of the javelin and was still alive, well, then the priests would hand Menelaus a javelin, and it would be his turn to take careful aim and throw that javelin at Paris. And, and Paris, of course, then would have to use 
use his shield arm to hold up his shield and attempt to deflect the blow of javelin thrown by Menelaus. Now, the two men were still alive after the throwing of the javelins, and they were expected to draw swords, advance on each other, and hack, jab, cut, and stab at each other until one of them lay dead on the battlefield, and then the contest would be over. So those were the precise rules of the contest. Well, the priests, as I said, had drawn lots, and Paris, Prince of Troy, was given first throw. So the two soldiers, the two combatants, stepped away from each other a distance of about 8 to 10 meters, and then Paris was handed a javelin and invited by the priests to take first throw. Menelaus braced his feet, held up his shield, and prepared to do his best to deflect the throw from Paris's javelin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be a little cruel here and leave you in a moment of suspense and witness what's happening inside of this contest as we're sitting and looking at it. And as I'm explaining it to you, there were, there, there were two particular people watching this contest up in the walls of Troy that, that I want to draw your attention to before we get to Paris's throw of the javelin. And, and, and up in the walls of Troy, of course, well, by this stage, the entire Trojan population is out and watching. And they've all heard the terms inside of Troy. The terms of this trial by single champion to the death have, have been publicized by the heralds in the streets. And, and the population of Troy, starving to death, standing up there and watching, knows that this next few moments is a pivotal and deciding moment inside of their history as a people. Something is going to happen in that battlefield today. And, and, and the thing that happens in that battlefield will determine whether the Greeks go home penniless or whether the Greeks go home with Helen, which what the Trojans couldn't care less about, but whether the Greeks go home with essentially the entire accumulated and assembled wealth of Troy as the reparation payments for the end of the war. So the Trojans, the entire population was up in the battlements watching, but I want to draw your attention to two particular individuals watching, and and they were right standing over top of the battlefield itself, and, and there they are. They're Old man King Priam, now into his very late 70s. And, and, and Priam is watching this contest. Priam had initially planned on watching the contest right down on the field of battle and in, in the first rank of, of the Trojan soldiers. But poor old Priam, he was a man of gentle disposition and, and, and a huge and forgiving heart. And Priam, and in spite of all of Paris's faults, still loved his second son, his heir to the throne. And as, as Priam had seen Paris preparing for this battle, Priam had known there was no doubt that Paris was going to die for sure at the hands of Menelaus. And poor Priam, it, it had just been too much for him to bear. So the father had had re- repaired back up to the walls of Troy and was was now watching the contest from the battlements at, a, at an emotionally slightly safer distance, if you will. And, and, and standing beside Priam was the other person inside of that story who had the most interest in what was happening in the battlefield. And of course, that was Helen, Helen of Troy, formerly Helen of Sparta. And imagine what Helen was thinking as she stood there watching this contest about to happen. The the two men fighting were, well, her husband and her former husband, her, her two lives, her Greek life and her, and her Trojan life were assembled on that battlefield. And, and, and as Helen stood there, the, the emotions of the experience began to overwhelm her and, and, and Helen watching burst into tears and began to cry. And, and, and Priam, the old gentle king, Priam was likely the only man left in Troy who, who treated Helen with love, compassion and care. Priam was wise enough and old enough to understand that 
that Helen had been a victim was a pawn in this war, that, that, that this war was not really about Helen, that this war was about geopolitics and that the Greeks were, were on Troy looking for any form of excuse to attack Troy. And Helen was that excuse. And Priam also turned around and recognized in his heart of hearts that if there was any villain in this piece who had caused this war, it wasn't the Greeks or the Trojans, but it was the Olympian gods currently watching the entire thing unfolding from their pedestal up on Mount Olympus. So, so Priam had turned around and Helen had begun to cry and Prime had gently placed his arm around the young woman and said, memories, Helena, this must be a particularly difficult day for you watching this. And, and Helen had burst into tears some more as she watched the contest preparing and Prime had said, tell me about the people down there, Helen. Who, who are these people? What, what is your relation to them? Talk to me, child. It'll, it, it might help you. And so Helen had, had looked down over the battlements and, and, and first, of course, looked to Paris, her current husband standing there, awkwardly wielding a javelin and trying to figure out how to throw the thing. And then she had looked across to Menelaus, a, a man who a decade ago she had found cold and distant and tedious and, and lacking in any sort of imagination and theater and drama, which is likely why, well, Paris to some degree had swept her off of her feet. And, and now she saw Menelaus standing there, calculated in a very calm military manner, preparing to kill Paris, her, her current husband. And, and then as, of course, Helen looked down onto the battlefield. She had been inside of Troy for 10 years, so she would have known some of the Trojan soldiers sitting there cross-legged in the front rank. She she knew those soldiers. She knew their wives. She knew their children. And, and and Helen, of course, couldn't help but feel that she was responsible for this thing that was happening. And no one had ever taken Helen aside and explained to her that that this war wasn't really about her, that she might have been the excuse for the war from the Greeks, but she certainly wasn't the cause of it. And and then as Helen looked across the plain, of course, while well, all of her, her childhood and, and her life with Menelaus until she had run away with Paris came flooding back. And uh, she turned and she pointed to Priam and, and, and laughed and, and, and bitterly through her tears pointed out some of her favorites. Over there, she said, over there, Priam. She said, look, that's Odysseus. And I, I, I remember when I was a little girl, Odysseus would sometimes come to my father's palace and, and, and he would tell the most wonderful and amazing stories. And he would sit up at night talking and telling these stories. And he, he always had a glimmer and a twinkle in his eye. Like there was some clever joke which he got which nobody else quite understood. And I, I, I liked Odysseus. And, 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 then, and then Helen, warming to the theme, had looked down through the Greek ranks and, and said, and there's Agamemnon, king of kings. And, 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 and a little shudder had gone through Helen. She said, he, he, he always kind of made me feel a little anxious or creeped me out. He was, he, he was a very powerful man and he looked as though he was capable of anything, Priam. I, I always felt afraid around him, but, but my husband, Menelaus, my, my former husband, Menelaus, well, well, he, he worshiped Agamemnon. He, Agamemnon was, was much, much, much smarter and craftier than, than, than my, well, than Menelaus ever would have been. And, and, and then turning away from Agamemnon and all of those bitter and confused memories, and Helen had looked down the beach and she said, Oh, and there's Ajax. And Ajax, of course, Helen had gone on to explain, had been, had been her favorite growing up. Ajax was a gentle giant of a soldier, fearsome on the battlefield, but the kindest, most disingenuous, loving and innocent, free-spirited man that she had ever met off of the battlefield. And, and, and Priam sat there and did his best to try to, 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 to try to encourage Helen and help Helen to come to terms with the misery and the horror that she was experiencing. And, and that was a, that was, I suppose, a gentle gift of Priam's that of, that of all the men in Troy who might have had reason to loathe and despise 
Helen and, and, and the misery that had, that had come to Troy with Helen, if not because of Helen. Well, Priam was one of the few people inside of the city who had seen above that and recognized that trapped inside of these walls now was a, was a poor woman who had, who had no exit strategy for this war herself. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's enough backstory about the spectator's view. The Olympian gods are watching. The people of Troy are watching. Prime and Helen are watching. And of course, you are watching. So let's get back to the trial by Tangle champion itself. Well, Paris picked up his javelin. Menelaus braced himself and Paris took careful aim and hurled the javelin with all of his might at Menelaus. No, the problem, of course, was that Paris's all of his might was not very much might at all. And, and the javelin, I give Paris some credit, managed to actually transverse the field between the two combatants and actually make it to the shield of Menelaus. But, but by the time it got there, there was no force behind it. And Paris's javelin bounced ineffectually and impotently to the ground in front of Menelaus. It, it was a non-shot in, in any military sense of the word. And, and then, of course, it was Menelaus's turn to throw. No, Menelaus was certainly not a warlord among the first rank of Greek warlords, but but he was a career soldier and he knew his way around a javelin. So Menelaus took careful aim and Paris shaking held up his little shield and Menelaus threw. Well, the javelin shot flew straight and true and it punctured directly through Paris's shield, flew through the shield itself and directly into the bronze breastplate of Paris, Prince of Troy. Fortunately for Paris, the the javelin was deflected just enough on impact by by the shield of Paris that the javelin turned before it entered the bronze armor and, and, and Paris, so the javelin punctured the armor in the breastplate, the javelin only scratched the outside of the flesh of Paris, Prince of Troy. A slight little cut, a mere flesh wound. But even that was too much for Paris, who had never been cut or bloodied in battle in his life. And as Paris suddenly realized that, uh, that he had been cut, that he had been injured, that he was bleeding, uh, well, Paris stood there paralyzed in shock. This had never happened to him. And, and by the, the time Paris, of course, recovered from the shock, uh, well, Menelaus, a career soldier and a veteran, was on Paris with his sword. Menelaus took his huge, heavy bronze sword and, and, and crashed it violently down directly on the top of Harris's bronze helmet. And, it should have been a killing blow. It should have been a death blow. But right as the sword hit the helmet of Paris, well, something happened to that sword. It, it, it shattered and the hilt of the sword fell off from the blade of that sword, sparing the life of Paris. Instead, Paris was just knocked unconscious and dazed on the ground as Menelaus stood there frustrated and looking at his broken sword. Now, some of you might you might kind of roll your eyes a little bit at this point and say, well, that's a rather clever little storytelling device, Jeff. Uh, a little bit of a deus ex machina there, Jeff, eh? Like uh, having, having Menelaus's sword break at precisely this moment and save Paris's life. And, and, and I understand where you're coming from, but, but I will refer you to, um, one of the post story commentaries I did on weapons some episodes ago. And I, I, I talked about, the, the favored weapons of the Bronze Age warriors. And, and if you recall that particular post-story commentary, I'll point out that Bronze Age warriors routinely preferred to use the security of a lethally bronze-tipped spear over, well, the tenuous nature of bronze swords, which, because bronze was a brittle metal, had this annoying habit of, of shattering on impact and coming apart precisely at the hilt. So, so what actually happened to Menelaus' sword? Well, 
It, it seems a little bit unfortunate in the timing. It, it was a very real thing that happened to swords all the time, and which is why the sword wasn't actually used very often by warlords in close combat conditions, because you just couldn't trust these weapons. Well, whatever the case, Menelaus stood there. He, he cursed as he looked at his broken bronze sword and realized that he now was weaponless. He had no way of finishing off Paris, Prince of Troy. So Menelaus had bent over, grabbed Paris by the helmet. These helmets had long, glorious, painted horsehair plumes and were attached by a little leather chin strap. And Menelaus began to drag Paris unconscious back towards the Greek lines, uh, pulling along. And Menelaus figured he'd get him back to the Greek lines and somebody would give him a weapon and he would make quick dispatch of, of the life of Paris, Prince of Troy and the contest by single champion to the death would be over with the Greeks declared the victors. And that's what would have happened, ladies and gentlemen, had it not been for the one individual in this entire Trojan War epic who, who actually cared a whit for the life of Paris, the unfortunate man who was the Prince of Troy. And, and that individual was none other than the goddess Aphrodite herself. Now, Aphrodite, of course, you'll recall, was Paris's personal champion ever since that day years ago when Paris had awarded her the, the golden apple and declared her the most beautiful of the goddesses. And, and on that day, Paris had earned the, the eternal, eternal love and support of Aphrodite and, of course, the eternal enmity and hostility of, of Hera and Athena. Well, Aphrodite was sitting with all the other Olympian gods up on their spectator stadium on Mount Olympus, watching the excitement of this entire drama unfold in front of them. And, and as soon as Aphrodite realized that her boy Paris was about to be killed by Menelaus, well, Aphrodite had flown as quickly as she could from Mount Olympus down onto the battlefield and enveloped her boy Paris in a thick shroud of mist. Now, this was the very same mist that I introduced you to way back 13 episodes of Trojan War, the podcast earlier. This was the mist which the Olympian gods used to secure their privacy upon Mount Olympus from prying tourists. And, and this mist was very, very useful for the gods and the deities on the battlefield. So Aphrodite essentially shrouded Paris in thick mist. And, and then out of that mist, Aphrodite had carefully and tenderly picked up her boy, the Prince Paris, and, and spirited him away from the battlefield and brought him to a place where Paris was much more comfortable and inside of his element and skill set. The bedroom of Helen of Troy. Well, there was, there, there, there was a moment of, of shock and confusion down on the battlefield when this happened, because you have to imagine the situation from the human spectator's point of view, folks. They, one moment they were watching Menelaus dragging the unconscious body of Paris back toward the Greek lines, where Menelaus would grab a sword and dispatch of the sorry boy. And, and then the next moment there was this unnatural fog and mist over the body of, of, of Paris, the Prince of Troy. And, and then when the mist cleared a second later, well, there was Menelaus, but there was no Paris. He was gone. He, he had vanished somehow. And, and, and the whole thing was strange and marvelous, confusing and remarkable. And, and the two armies, the Greeks and the Trojans, sat there still cross-legged on the ground, staring at each other, wondering, well, well what does this mean? And the priests governing the contest, of course, immediately huddled and conferred, and they didn't know what this mean. What do you do inside of the rule book when you're having a contest to the death, trial by single champion, and and it looks as though one of the single champions is 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 going to die, but hasn't died, and and then there's this little bit of fog on the field of play, and when you look up, well, it, well that champion is somehow 
vanished. And, and of course, the priests turned around and said, well, well, did, did Paris run away? And, and if he did, well, what does that mean inside of the rules? Or, or, or was Paris spirited away by a deity? And, and, and if that's the case, well, what does that mean inside of the rules? And, and of course, if, if this was a 21st century sporting contest, this is a point where the referees would have got together and, and gone for the video review. And there would have been a long, 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 tedious delay in the game. And, and when we came back after about 15 commercial breaks, we, we would have seen the referees still sitting there under their hooded tents looking at the video footage and frantically going through the rule book to figure out, well, well, exactly what is the rule in a situation where one of the contestants uh, who should have been killed has somehow vanished from the field of play. Well, in either case, ladies and gentlemen, when the Trojan and the Greek priests got together and looked at the situation in front of them, it was very clear that regardless of whether Paris had run away in the fist mist in the fog or whether Paris had been spirited away by the deity in the mist in the fog, well, whichever way you looked at it, victory in this contest clearly, clearly, clearly had it to be awarded to the Greeks. Menelaus had obviously won the contest, and even though there wasn't a dead body of uh, of Paris, Prince of Troy, there in the battlefield, the fact that Paris was not on the battlefield indicated that, well, that Menelaus was a clear winner. So the priests were in the process of declaring that the war was over, that that the Trojans would have to forfeit Helen, that the Trojans would have to turn over these vast reparation payments, and and the Greek soldiers sitting there cross-legged in the beach let out a mighty whoop and a cheer. They knew that they were going home. Their ten years of misery on the beaches of Troy were over, and they were actually going. Home. But curiously, from the Trojan ranks, an equal whoop and a cheer went went up. The Trojan soldiers suddenly realized, we are going to live. Our city is not going to be burned to the ground. We are going to get out of this. This is wonderful news. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, the only place where there wasn't a whoop and a cheer happening was up inside of the stadium on Mount Olympus, where the Olympian gods suddenly recognized, to, to, to their horror and to their shock, that their favorite series, the, the Trojan War epic, the, this, wonderful, this wonderful story that they had been tuning into much as you have, ladies and gentlemen, for episode after episode after episode was about to come to a sudden and abrupt end because, well, the darn humans down on Earth were going to find a way to end this particular war with only one dead body, and even that body wasn't quite certainly dead. And and and, and the Olympian gods, in a panic, thought, well, this simply won't do. What will we do for entertainment? And and Aphrodite, of course, gloating, laughed. But Athena, who who had not been given the apple, been awarded the apple by Paris, and therefore hated all things Trojan, Athena had immediately taken taken matters into her own hands. She had flown down from Mount Olympus, flown herself invisibly into the Trojan ranks, and then turned around and whispered poisonous words into the ears of a of a Trojan foot soldier and nobody sitting in the back rows. And Athena had turned around and counseled that Trojan foot soldier that the wise thing to do, the clever thing to do, was to violate the terms of the treaty and, and to launch an arrow into the back of Menelaus. Athena lied and said, you will win everlasting glory for yourself. Uh, they will tell your story down through the ages if you do this. And, and the poor dim-witted Trojan foot soldier, completely bedazzled by the goddess of wisdom herself, had, had, had notched an arrow into his bow and in complete violation of the terms of the truth said, let that arrow fly. And the arrow had flown directly towards the back of Menelaus as he was, as he was still recovering from dragging the body of Paris away. And, and of course, then Athena, being a very fast goddess and not really wanting Menelaus to die, had flown quickly towards Menelaus and, and deflected the arrow's flight just enough that it, it, it merely scratched Menelaus. But, but the scratch was sufficient. The, the terms of the truce between the Trojans and the Greeks had been violated. A Trojan arrow had flew, and what Athena and the other deities hoped for happened immediately. A, a Greek foot soldier, not thinking it through, had screamed and yelled and said, you traitors, you, you violated the truce, and a Greek foot soldier 
soldier launched an arrow into the Trojan camp. And then, ladies and gentlemen, all conversations about who had won the war and how it had ended and whether the Greeks were awarded reparation payments or whether Terrace had run away or been spirited away, all those conversations immediately became moot because suddenly thereafter, 10 years of non-fighting, it was all out war between the Greeks and the Trojans on that plain of Troy. Up on Mount Olympus, of course, the deities all cheered and roared their approval. They uh, they had been briefly afraid that that their favorite miniseries was about to be cancelled, but but now seeing the two armies converge on each other, the the Olympian gods knew that they that they could settle in for episode after episode after episode of more exciting drama, glory, death, heroism, and storyline to follow. Now, I'd like to take you briefly as a bit of a postscript, because obviously the, the the war that is going to happen is 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 going to actually take us episode after episode after episode of podcast. And and maybe we can't help but sort of be cheering right along with those Olympian gods because of that fact. But but let's stop and look for a brief moment at poor Helen, because I, I think Helen often ends up not getting cared for and, and, and given the time inside of this story that she deserves. And so I'd like to spend a few moments and, and give you a bit of a sense of Helen's backstory in the last 10 years. I've, I've painted a fairly vivid picture of what life is like for Paris and how he's responding to what happened 10 years ago and how he's been dealing with it. But I'd now like to turn to Helen. And, and Helen's story is completely different from Paris's. Of course, when she came back to Troy, she was, of course, fully engaged in the fairy tale wedding, too. And she was just as excited as Paris that uh, the two of them had moved back to Troy. And, and of course, Helen was still well, recovering, if you will, or, or, or still completely bedazzled by the effects of the erotic arrows which Aphrodite had, had shot into her. But that was all 10 years ago. And those, those erotic arrows and the impact of those erotic arrows had completely, completely worn off. And, and, and now Helen was working with a fully functioning brain and a fully functioning heart. And, and she had had 10 years, just like the citizens of Troy and just like her brother-in-law Hector, to, to do a more accurate appraisal of, of Paris, this man that she had, that she had run away with. And Helen had come to the conclusion that Paris was, was vacuous, uh, shallow, self-interested and, and, and a man of no character whatsoever. And, and Helen had deep, deep, profound regrets for the decision that she had made to leave Menelaus all those years ago. Now, worse than that, of course, Helen, because she had a conscience, was, was overwhelmed by feelings of self-loathing and guilt. Nobody had ever taken Helen aside and clearly explained to her the geopolitics of the Greek attack on Troy and that and, and that she was the excuse for the war, not the cause of the war. And, and so Helen, as she walked through the streets of Troy and saw the Trojan citizens slowly starving to death and, and suffering inside of this war, was personally firmly convinced that it was entirely her fault, that she was personally the author of the destruction of, of the people of Troy. And, and, and Helen bore that guilt with, with, with an incredible degree of intensity. She, she was unrelenting in her, in her negative self-talk. She constantly inside of the Iliad referred to, her, to herself as, as a miserable bitch and as, and as a horrible whore. She says she, she hates herself and, and it's because she's convinced that she's responsible for the war. And no, no, Helen, of course, course, would have turned herself back over to the Greeks and ended the war, but Helen had become a political pawn and a bargaining chip for the Trojans, so so the Trojans wouldn't let Helen leave. And, and to make matters worse, of course, Helen, in the most recent years, as the starvation inside the city had got worse and worse, Helen could not even leave the safe confines of the royal Trojan palace. She could no longer even safely walk through the streets because, well, the mob would have torn her to pieces. Uh, the men of Troy would still look at Helen and 
and would be immediately overwhelmed by her incredible beauty. Helen, Helen had not, had not, her beauty had not diminished an iota in these last 10 years. And, and when the Trojan men saw her, they, they would still be completely overwhelmed and bedazzled by her. She, she was history's most glorious, gorgeous, and smoking hot woman and always would be. But, but the moment the men would look at her and, and they'd have these initial, overwhelming senses of desire and lust for her. The look in their face next, which Helen would always see, would be a look of, of fear and loathing, as though the men recognized that they were looking at some sort of a dangerous deity or monster that was bedazzling them with looks. And and, and Helen knew that that the men in that mob would, would have stoned her to death had they been able to get anywhere near her. So she was confined inside of the palace and and worst of all, of course, was was Helen's relationship with Paris, and and of course Aphrodite, the champion of Paris, who had always who had promised Paris that Paris would be given the undying lust of this woman Helen. Aphrodite was doing her very best to ensure that Aphrodite kept her end of the deal. So, so Helen, who had absolutely no no desire to spend any time in in the bedroom with Paris, who found the man absolutely loathsome, and who uh, Paris gave Helen the creeps. Well, every time Helen would would refuse when when Paris would run to Helen's bedroom and say, come comfort me, Helen. Well, every time Helen would refuse to go into the bedroom, Aphrodite would appear beside Helen and, and Aphrodite would put on the guise of a terrible and frightening goddess and, and order Helen back into the bedroom and order Helen in the bedroom to turn around and service Paris, Prince of Troy, Aphrodite's little pretty boy prince. And, and Helen found herself with no choice. So, so Helen would return to Paris's bedroom. She would provide the services of which Paris required and, and sitting in an end chair watching and smiling lascivious through the entire episode day after day after day would be Aphrodite, goddess of everything south of the waste. And there was no way out for Helen. She was doomed. She was trapped. And many days she would stand and look out over the battlements of Troy and wonder if the only course left to her was to throw herself off of those battlements. So Helen's story, unlike Paris's story, was a, a sad one for different reasons. Paris's story was pathetic. He didn't realize, he didn't have the imagination to, to, to recognize his culpability and what was happening down there in the battlefield in front of him. And, and Helen's story was tragic. She, she falsely blamed herself for everything that was happening down in that battlefield. And had no agency to do anything about it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is likely a fairly good place for us to leave this particular episode of, of the podcast, of TrojanWarPodcast.com. Obviously, we're going to be setting up for a huge battle in the next episode, and that's going to take us multiple episodes to cover the battle between the Greeks and the Trojans. So, so I will now just leave you with the vision of 75,000 Trojans converging on 100,000 Greeks. And you have options, of course, the usual options at this stage. If if you want to find out exactly what happens in the battle and you're impatient and you're just in it for the story, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, trojanwarpodcast.com, where the next episode will be available any day now soon. On the other hand, if you want to stick around for the post-story commentary, I'm going to dedicate the entire post-story commentary to to a discussion of the Olympian gods and their role and their agency inside of this story and, and of how different tellers through the ages and the centuries have, have approached these, these very interesting Olympian gods and, and, and how they've made sense of the gods inside of the story. So I think you'll have an awful lot of fun if you stick around. And so if you want to, we'll do that and, and, uh, we'll pick that up in a few moments. And for those of you who want to just get on with the story and what happens and find out what happens when the two armies converge, well, I pause in a few seconds 
seconds, wish you a great day and, and invite you to go listen to that next episode. So for some of you, this is goodbye. And for the rest of you, I'll talk to you again in about 15 to 25 seconds. So welcome to the post story commentary. Now, I told you I'd tell you a little bit, or we'd talk a little bit about these Olympian deities, which seem to obviously have been playing an increasingly interventionist role inside of our story. And a few little reminders about the Olympian deities, because most of us listening in on this podcast, of course, are, if we are theists, well, we are not Greek polytheists. And the deity that we believe in and worship is quite, quite different from, well, from the 12 Olympian deities that are presented inside of the Trojan War epic. What you need to remember is that the Olympian deities were not the, the creators of creation. The Olympian deities are just one kind of a creature inside of creation. We don't know what created creation. There's no story inside of the Greek Bronze Age tradition really explaining that. But creation consisted of different categories of, of life form. And one of those forms of life was deity. And another form was human. And another form was animal. And a final form was plant. And, and the Olympian deities, therefore, really didn't create human beings. And as a consequence, the Olympian deities don't have any form of maternal or paternal relationship or particular sense of love or care or compassion for human beings at all. In fact, the most common way that Olympian deities refer to human beings is they see us as miserable, unfortunate wretches who are forced to crawl around miserably in the earth for a very, very few inconsequential number of years before we die horribly in old age. And, and the Olympian deities... They sometimes feel sorry for us, but it's more in the way that, that we might feel sorry for uh, for some poor, small, little animal than in, in any sort of way that that there's something noble about being humanity. Um, the Olympian deities saw nothing particularly ennobling in humanity or in the human condition or human existence. And and so that's a big difference that we have to remember. They they don't feel any form of obligation to us as, as our creators or as our particular benefactors in any uh, particular large global sense of the word. Now, the other thing that you will have noticed about the Olympian deities is that well, they seem to be spectators in on human affairs, and throughout the Iliad, we see them we see them sitting up on Mount Olympus and and watching in on human affairs. Well, much the way that rabid sports fans might sort of sit in in box seats or in front of their big screen televisions and, and watch the Super Bowl, and and the Olympian deities sort of treat the entire Trojan War much the same way as modern day sports fans who the worst of us who lose complete completely lose any form of perspective or or, or rational. Behavior behavior or conduct when we're watching a sporting event in which we're engaged. Well, the, the Olympian deities cheer and boo for either side. They they show no balance or fairness inside of their perspective. And and, and as much as possible, they do their very best to, to manipulate the outcome of events. And this just seems to be what they like to do. So there is a completely legitimate sense inside of when you're listening to Trojan War, the podcast, and and you're wondering about these deities. Well, yes, they are actually sitting up there and interfering in the events of this war as much as they can. Occasionally, Zeus, uh, king of the gods and master of the thunderbolt, who more often than not looks like a befuddled patriarch of a dysfunctional family. Well, uh, occasionally, Zeus will turn to his family members, uh, Hera, Athena, Aphrodite, a lot of them, and issue strict, strict instructions and say, don't interfere. Let let this unfold without our agency or interference. And and there are famous scenes in the Iliad where Zeus threatens any deity who interferes. And, and then 10 seconds later, when Zeus's back is turned, the deities, of course, are interfering in the events. And, and Zeus seems helpless to be able to stop this level of interference because sometimes he does it himself. 
So the deities are lined up, they're interfering, and it's very clear where the battle lines are drawn. Um, uh, the three goddesses are the main players, and Aphrodite, who was awarded the the apple for the fairest by a Trojan prince, of course, is now an advocate and champion of the Trojans. And, and and this is this is bitterly ironic, of course, because the Trojans absolutely despise Paris, and Aphrodite hasn't seemed to have clued into that particular detail. And and Athena and Hera, who were not awarded the apple for the fairest, uh, consequently despise everything to do with Troy, and and they're championing the Greek champions and 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 championing the Greek inside of this war and and Zeus sort of sits there in the middle though it's very clear that he if he had his druthers Troy would would survive this particular war but of course he has Hera his wife to contend with and and Zeus is actually at the end of the day much more concerned about balancing domestic politics up on Mount Olympus than he is about the fate of any petty human beings down on earth. And this, of course, then means that storytellers attempting to tell the story of the of the Trojan War epic are confronted with some significant, significant problems. Because how do you make sense of of these deities inside of plot? Should we take them seriously? Should uh, should we treat them with some degree of of, of reverence? Should we uh, should we you know accrue to them awe and majesty, or or do we or do we turn around and pretend that they don't really exist at all? And and, and storytellers down through the centuries have come up with a couple of different solutions. Uh, one very, very common solution is to tell the entire Trojan War epic completely devoid of any interference of the deities at all. There are storytellers that tell the complete story without a single reference to an Olympian god having any agency in the plot at all. So these storytellers essentially turned the Trojan War epic exclusively into a, a geopolitical human story involving a war, and and everything is explained inside of geopolitical or human cultural terms. And 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 they will have their characters praying to the gods, but they never actually have the gods then turning around and and having any agency over the story and the plot as it develops. Now, this can be done really really well. One of my favorite versions of this is a novel called The Song of Troy by a by a writer called Colleen McCullough. It's an awful lot of fun. A second approach, which is very, very common in dealing with the deities, is to turn around and, and say, well, well, no, what we need to understand is in, inside of the ancient Bronze Age, when they didn't have a good understanding of, of science or, or of human chemistry or human psychology, uh, then if you take a look at the deities, all the deities really are, scholars will argue, is, is well, each of the deities is, is a template or a, a, for a psychological manifestation of a human condition. So, so when human beings, we know, sometimes feel sexual desire and lust, and, and, and therefore, whenever inside of the story we refer to Aphrodite. We're actually uh, this is the ancient Bronze Age preliterate world's way of referring to human sensations of lust or sexual desire. And 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 if a character inside of the story is said to be visited by Athena, well, and for example, in the case where in the last episode I told you Achilles is visited by Athena and she says, uh, uh, Achilles, sheath your sword, don't kill Agamemnon. Well, this particular line of storyteller will turn around and say, well, it wasn't that Achilles was really visited by Athena. It's just that well, Achilles suddenly got wise and realized it would not be a good idea to kill Agamemnon, king of kings, at this particular juncture. And so uh, the way that the Bronze Age explained Achilles' wisdom was to say he was visited by Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And, and, and that particular approach, gods and goddesses as psychological manifestations and, and stand-ins for human conditions, is very, very, very popular. I, I, I tend to find it's a little patronizing towards Bronze Age cultures myself, but there were many scholars and academics that disagree with me. 
There's a third and final approach, and that approach is an approach called over-determinism. And, and, and the over-determinists, uh, what they attempt to do is what, well, frankly, I suppose I'm attempting to do when I tell the story. And, and that's it. I'm attempting for every possible action or plot episode in the story I can. I'm attempting to give you both a fully human and a fully divine explanation for what might be particularly happening on that battlefield at that particular time. So if there's a way of explaining an event inside of strictly human age, agency, then I will usually explain the event using strictly human agency, but then I will turn around and and if Homer tells us that the gods were involved or or some of the other uh, storytellers inside of the Trojan War epic cycle say the gods were involved, well then I'll explain the deific agency of the same event. So sometimes I'll end up giving you two causes for the very same thing and, and I'm quite happy with that because that way I basically get to cheat and compromise and play both ends against the middle and you can, you can make of the deities what you want. And it also solves a problem for me in some cases inside of the Trojan War epic where it's really, really hard to see any agency involved that could be human. It has to strictly be a god involved. And by using this over-deterministic approach, I cover myself off then. If, if I need to explain something simply by saying, this was Zeus doing this, well, then I don't have to apologize to you and I don't have to turn Zeus into some form of psychological manifestation. Zeus is a real dude, uh, a very large and, and powerful deity who is a master of the Thunderbolts sitting up on Mount Olympus and, and watching this entire epic unfold and pulling the puppet strings on it as best he can. So that's essentially the different approaches storytellers have used to the story. How the ancient Greeks felt about their deities, how, how soldiers down on the battlefield would have felt going into battle about, about Zeus, about Hera, about Poseidon, about Athena. Well, we won't ever really know, but we do know that very few soldiers in the entire history of our planet have ever gone into battle without, without arming themselves with a belief in, in some form of deity who the soldiers obviously optimistically hoped to, uh, was championing their cause and believed that their cause was just and would somehow uh, look after them as opposed to looking after the soldier on the other side who was equally praying to a deity. And, and, and so that's a common human element inside of all wars, the old adage that there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, I'm not sure it's an entirely true adage. Uh, war can turn individuals into atheists, I think, just as much as it can turn them into theists. But uh, certainly inside of the Bronze Age world, um, if you believed in these Olympian deities, then you darn well did your very best to appease them, sacrifice to them, and keep them as happy as possible. Because unlike our modern incarnations of deities who behave towards human beings with at least some degree of what we consider love or affection or paternal or maternal care, well, the Olympian gods uh, behaved like petulant children. And the best thing to do to appease them was to roll lots of animals and sacrifice lots of wonderful things to the gods and leave a lot of treasure at their altar. And that's precisely what the Bronze Age Greeks of necessity did. Now, that's a very quick little sort of post-story commentary, but a great place to leave things. Uh, there's a huge battle looming on the plains of Troy, and we'll want to get over to that battle and see what happens when 100,000 Greeks confront 75,000 Trojans in the first time that these armies have actually met in a full no-holes-barred since this entire war began. And that episode will be waiting for you at my website, Trojan War Podcast, where I encourage you to go over and listen to it. It'll be up any day now soon. So in the meantime, I hope you've had fun. I hope you learned a few things and have yourselves a wonderful day.